Eight Conversations About Recruiting, Preparing, and Retaining STEM Teachers. Conversation 7, STEM Teacher Mentoring and Induction. This conversation focuses on STEM teacher mentoring and induction and is chaired by Joe Euler, formerly of Montclair State University and now at Maynooth University in Ireland, and features Nicole Gillespie of the Knowles Teacher Initiative, Toby Sparrow of West Windsor Plainsboro High School North and Rutgers University, and Audra Watson of the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. In this conversation, the panelists discuss the question, how do we best support traditional and alternate route STEM teachers through their first five years? So good afternoon, my name is Joe Euler. It's my privilege to be the chair of this session uh, on teacher supports. Um, I'm also gonna be a panel, I'm presenting on the panel, so I'm gonna have a seat and just engage with the other panelists. Um, I wanna thank you all, I hope you're having a great afternoon. Uh, I'm briefly gonna, just to kind of run through the session, I'm gonna give an introduction to the, uh, my fellow panelists. Uh, each panelist will present for about 10 minutes. Then what we'd like to do is, is to offer up a round of discussion just amongst the panel if there are questions that the panelists have of each other for another 10 minutes, and then we'll turn over the discussion to a kind of whole room discussion. Um, so to go ahead and start, let me introduce our panelists. Uh, first down at the end of the table is Nicole Gillespie from the Knowles Science Teaching Foundation. Next to her is Toby Sparrow from Rutgers University. Next to me is Audra Watson of the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. And my name is Joe Weather. I'm the induction coordinator here at Montclair State. Uh, we've asked the panelists to address the question, how do we best support traditional and alternate route STEM teachers through their first five years? And Nicole, you can start us off. Thank you. Is that on? You gotta push, push. the thing. How's that? <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, uh, Better? Sorry about that. Okay. So um, I'm Nicole Gillespie. I'm the executive director of the Knowles Science Teaching Foundation. We're about an hour and a half south of here in Moorestown, New Jersey, not Morristown, which is close, <laughs> Morristown down south. Um, we have a five-year fellowship program for beginning high school math and science teachers. And I say math and science deliberately um, and not STEM. That is the wishes of our founder, who's 89 years old and still with us, and dangling another chunk of a possible endowment in front of us, so we don't say STEM in front of him. Um, anyway, this is, it's uh, for beginning teachers, so that is, uh, we just awarded the, our last round, the 2017 cohort, for teachers who will be in their first or second year of teaching. That is intentionally, we keep it that narrow because we found our program is more effective if the teachers in the cohort have a pretty um, tight range of experience. Um, and we don't have any mandate on where they teach, just what, what they teach, so high school math and science. So when I was thinking about what it is that we do to support them through these first five years, um, we started off years ago, I've been there for 13 years now, um, we started off as a kind of induction program. We now really see ourselves as a program to build leadership capacity in the, pro in the teaching professions. Um, so I want to talk about what I sort of see as what we've learned over these last 13 years as the most important things to not only keep new teachers in the profession, help them build teaching proficiency, but also develop as change agents that are going to drive improvement in education from the ground up. Um, and I think the first and most important thing is that they have a vision of themselves as teaching professionals and a vision for what the teaching profession could be. 
Um, we talk a lot about supporting teachers to be the primary agents of educational improvement. And this may sound like a lot to lay on a brand new teacher, and sometimes it is. Um, but what we've found that is when you get people who are, have been very successful in their lives, um, they have STEM degrees, they have lots of other options, keeping them engaged and committed in the profession really hinges on them having a vision of what comes after I've figured out classroom management and after I've figured out lesson planning and after I've figured out all these things. Um, the second thing I would say is that we really work with teachers on building productive professional relationships with their professional colleagues. And that doesn't just mean being friendly with the teachers in your building, but becoming um, the kind of teachers who invite feedback into their, on their practice, who are willing to open their practice to their colleagues, and who are good at giving um, critical feedback so that they lift their community around them and not just improve their own practice. Um, the third one I would say is a continuous engagement with their content. Um, when we award these fellowships, we give it one of our criteria is that they have exceptional content knowledge. And they are, they are an impressive bunch. They come, like I said, with degrees in math or science, um, generally from great schools. They've been very successful. And we very intentionally start with this idea that that content knowledge is necessary but not sufficient for teaching. So we draw a lot, we play heavily on the work of Deborah Ball on this idea about building content knowledge that is specialized for the work of teaching. And that requires a little bit of humility and willingness to be vulnerable, to be able to say, oh, you know, I have a degree in physics and I still struggle. I just, Newton's third law, I still got some, some things unstuck. So we try and build a culture where that kind of vulnerability and willingness to continually dive deeply into your own con content knowledge, particularly the elementary stuff, is pretty important. And that becomes foundational for um, helping teachers to create learning opportunities for all of their students. Um, the mechanism by which we do all of those things is practitioner inquiry. So we put a lot of work into supporting our teachers to be take an inquiry stance towards their own teaching where they see it as a site of study and use that to improve um, not only their own teaching as beginning teachers, but to own the means for their own professional development throughout their careers. So this becomes a pretty important thing for teachers that are mobile, that move around, that may land in schools that don't have a lot of resources for continuing professional development. If they are practitioner, if they have an inquiry stance, they are always capable of developing themselves. Um, perhaps more importantly than that is teachers who have capacity to engage in practitioner inquiry are generating knowledge for their profession. And that is really important. Um, teaching is a little bit odd in the, in, among the professions, whereas teachers themselves are generally not seen as the people who generate knowledge for the profession. It's generally seen as outsiders. So practitioner inquiry disrupts that status, and that turns out to be a pretty important thing for beginning teachers. Um, so I haven't had my two-minute warning yet, so I'll keep going a little bit. Um, the way that we do that, like I said, it's a five-year fellowship program. In the first two years, we focus pretty heavily on this idea about building content knowledge for teaching. And that involves first looking deeply at your own content knowledge and where you might have gaps. Um, and I just want to comment, I've, I've heard a lot of conversation today about math teachers and science teachers. We find it's fairly rare, particularly for science teachers, um, that they're teaching a single subject all day long. Biology teachers are the most likely to get that scenario. Very few physics teachers are teaching five physics classes all day long. So this idea that you have a degree in your science and therefore you're prepared is pretty, it's a little bit, um, it just doesn't mesh with the reality. Everybody's got some, some issues that they're gonna have to deal with with content. 
Um, also in the first two years, we really work around building community norms within the cohort, so they begin to practice this idea about being a critical friend, inviting others into your cohort or into your practice with a group of people who are not in their school, nobody has any say in their evaluation, nobody's gonna go back to their principal and report anything. So it's an orthogonal system to where their, their evaluation lies, and that's pretty important. Um, in the second two years, we work really hard on expand, helping them expand their perspective on what counts as data and helping them build their analytic skills. So when you talk about uh, data or evidence with teachers, a lot of times immediately people go towards test scores, and those can be valuable, but we really want them to understand that there's a broad range of data that they could use to understand the effects and the impacts of their own teaching practice including student work, but also things like interviewing a student, doing observations of what's happening in their classroom, um, and as well as using more traditional things like test scores. In those second two years, we also work with them a lot to understand the importance of identity, their own identity as teachers and what they bring to their classrooms, but also the identities of their students and what their students bring from their home lives, their communities, and what have you. And then finally, in the fifth year, we work on helping them understand the systems that they are part of, and importantly, their own roles in those systems, um, to take a, by taking that, applying the inquiry skills that they've learned to a systems perspective, they begin to under, understand where the levers are for change, and where they as teachers and their colleagues can start pushing on levers for change to drive improvement um, in their schools and districts from, that, from the classroom up. Um, so that is pretty much the, the overview of what I wanted to say about um, what we do to support teachers in the first five years. And we do get, um, we get some pushback from folks that say like, oh, you guys have, you have funding, you can do these things, five years is a luxury. Um, all of that is true. And I will say that we're now um, entering kind of a, an exciting new phase in what we do. Um, this is the first time I'm saying this publicly, so you can all say you were here for this. But we're changing our name this fall. Um, we're going to shift from calling ourselves the Knowles Science Teaching Foundation, thank you, to the Knowles Teacher Initiative. Um, that is a better descriptor of what we are doing um, to build leadership capacity in the profession. And as part of that, we're going to be launching a Knowles Academy this fall, which is where we'll be taking what we've learned from 15 years of working on this fellowship and thinking about how do we take that to a broader audience, to schools and districts and individual teachers. Um, It'll be a professional development model, but an extended one where it's a hybrid in-person online, and it's not just a few days here and then we disappear, but it will be extended for at least a year for each of these offerings. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Nicole. So, hi, everybody. Can you hear me? I feel like a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my name is Toby Spiro. I'm actually primarily a physics teacher, high school physics teacher here in New Jersey. Um, I've been teaching the last five years, and I went through uh, this program at Rutgers, which now I teach for <clears throat> in addition to teaching high school. I kind of wanted to tell you about what we do after you start teaching by telling you kind of how I went through it, because I was, I was part of that, um, and now I'm part of this. Um, so I went to Rutgers as a four-year undergrad for physics being one of those rare people that actually wanted to teach, knowing that I wanted to teach. So I was definitely oriented that way um, to begin with. And the nice thing about the, uh, the Rutgers pro program, and one of the reasons why I did it, was it was a five-year master's program. So it's, it's a five-year program. Some people come to it after they do undergrad and do it as an additional two years, like most places. Um, but we rerun it at the same time. Um, and it really 
the, the thing that we do after people start teaching, it's not, it's not as formal as what a foundation does. Um, it's more of just a, a community. We constantly keep in touch. We have meetings once a month or maybe a couple times a month where we just get together and collaborate and do professional development. Nobody's getting paid for it. We all just take our own time to, to travel to Rutgers and, and get together. <clears throat> so the way in which it kind of starts is kind of trial by fire. We, it's a very, very intense program. <clears throat> I was listening to one of the other panel discussions earlier about the, uh, you know, your main class that you have that's content-based as you go through a traditional program. And I was actually really surprised because it sounds like most of the, the programs that people were talking about, there's one class where you have your content. And it might not even be your content, right? It's like your, the science teachers. Um, I felt very lucky that we had a physics-specific program, and I felt like I had six methods classes, not one methods class, one of which I, I teach now um, in the summers. So it's kind of this extreme, intense environment where there's you know, less than 10 of us, and it's very, very rigorous, and you're kind of you're forced into it together, and you have to cling to each other to, uh, to survive. Um, and that really helps build part of this community where even after we graduate, we all stay in touch. You know what I mean? And, you, and it's not just a professional community. It's also a friendship community where, you know, these people are your people. None of us work in the same school district but we still get together, not just socially, but also for this professional development. So a lot of the things that are done in the program, I'm sure were explained by other programs, we do inquiry-based, we do evaluating student work, and we, we do all these different things. Um, some of the, the things that I wanted to, to really mention about building part of this community is it's not just about, let's say, evaluating some random student's work. The people that are currently teaching will bring their work to the classes of the pre-service teachers and will be evaluating their students' work. So in other words, students that are learning in the style in which we are learning how to teach. So I was doing research, physics education research, with tests from a woman who went through the program two years before. And I was looking at those kinds of tests that eventually I would be making and I would be implementing and already learning through people in this community what that process would be like and what's working and what's not working. Um, one of the other things I think that really helped make this community is throughout all these classes over two years, you know, we do these micro-teachings, which I know is, is very common in these programs, but they're virtually all team teaching. You pair up with one or two other people and together I did a lesson on nuclear fission and the history of nuclear fission, but I did it with somebody. It was something that was very rigorous content-wise. Maybe you will, maybe you won't teach it in the future. But of course, you know, to teach this much content, you should be knowing you know, this much, much larger breadth of content. <clears throat> it turns out I actually have taught it <laughs> since then. Um, one of the other really important aspects of this community is before we did our student teaching, we also were TAs for a physics course, undergraduate physics course at Rutgers that was kind of designed half for the purpose for us. So this is a course that's not for physics majors, it was more algebra based, so something similar to what you might actually teach at the high school level. And we got very early exposure in how to run a lab, how to run a recitation, problem solving with students, but heavy on the training wheels. You know, it was very much 
there's still a professor, there's still a lecture, and then we're kind of supplementing that. And then we went that from that to observations together. We would always go in pairs to a school to observe people, and then student teaching. So it's always, we're always kind of part of this, this community where we're always interacting with each other. Um, with student teaching, we always strive as best as possible to place the pre-service teachers with former graduates of the program that teach in that same similar style, people that are going to be supportive, that are going to say, yeah, try this, but also do what you want, and you know, we're not a straight lecture kind of group of people, and if you are with a straight lecture kind of person, unfortunately I was, um, it was kind of a crapshoot. It was either, well, do whatever you want and I don't really care, or no, you're not allowed to do this thing that you're learning right now. You have to just lecture this. And, and it's a very dichotomous thing, but we try not to do that. It's very, you know, we know what you're trying to do and we want to support what you're doing. So, you know, put people with someone of the same teaching style. Um, after you leave the program and now you're a full-fledged teacher, um, we have these usually like once a month, maybe twice a month, <clears throat> Friday night meetings. And it's not required, it's not mandatory. Like I said before, nobody gets paid for it. At most, you'll get some PD hours out of it, although most people don't request it because you get so much through other stuff. Um, we get together, it's usually like three, four and a half hours on a Friday night, so you know, we have a good social life. <clears throat> you can tell. Um, and this started in 2002, so long before I, you know, was part of the program. Um, it's something that Eugenia Etkin has started. She's the head of the, the physics teacher preparation program at Rutgers. And it was really meant for this purpose of how do you retain people, how do you give support to this group of teachers that's brand new. Um, and it just definitely evolved. Uh, apparently the way it started from what, from what I know is it was kind of just uh, like a bitching session. <laughs> this is what parents are like, this is what my administration is like, how do I deal with this, how do I do that? Um, and then it definitely evolved within a couple years to be more about physics and more about teaching physics. And so within a couple years there was then an online presence. They started a Yahoo group and now we have a Facebook group. And when we get together, it's not just, it's not just Eugenia bringing stuff to the table. Everybody brings something to the meetings. Um, she was on sabbatical for a year and myself and another physics teacher, we actually ran the meetings for a whole year. Um, and it was very much in line of, well, right now it's October and everybody's pretty much doing forces, no matter what level you're teaching. What kind of experiments can we do that students can come up with? What kind of activities, <clears throat> what kind of questioning techniques work for forces for this topic? Um, what kind of projects are we doing? Very much in line of not just learning physics, which we also do, um, but how do you still incorporate pedagogy in the physics? That's, that's the really, really important thing. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing. It's almost like we're still in grad school. It's, it's not a two-year program, it's not a five-year program or a 10-year program. People have been coming for the last 15 years, and I've been doing this for the last five years, and we're always trying to do something new, do something different. Uh, when NGSS started getting rolled out, we would hold workshops 
on NGSS. We've been holding workshops on incorporating engineering into your physics classroom on standards-based grading. That's my personal pet peeve thing. Um, we've also been doing different new types of questions that are non-traditional, not where there's one right answer, but what if you have, here's student A, B, and C, and they all have these three different responses to the same prompt. How do you analyze that? How do you get the good and the bad out of all of them? And that's a question you would give to students, not for teachers. You know, but we talk about how to utilize those things the best in, in the classroom. We also try to get together outside of Rutgers and do activities. Every couple of years we'll go to a rollerblading rink and we'll practice all of our physics moves on rollerblades. We have different experiments that we'll do where you know, a kid will push you or you throw a ball back and forth and you're on rollerblades. And it's a family event. You know, People bring their families, but it's also for physics and physics teaching and professional development. We all went together to March for Science and that was a family event, but it was also something that was very important as a community. Um, so I know I'm running out of time, so I guess the thing I'll say is you know, anybody that's you know, part of one of these types of teacher you know, development programs, um, I think that's the most important thing. Is it's, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, something that's super regimented and, you know, and this is the step one, step two, step three. It's just a constant community of people that you have you know, this teaching style in common with. You have this common background and you just keep it going. So I don't, I don't see this as a, you know, a 10-year plan. This is, you know, as long as I'm teaching and as long as I'm, you know, near New Jersey, I'm going to participate. And we have people that Skype in from, like, you know, Hong Kong and California that went through the program, but they're not around anymore. Anyway, thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Audra Watson, and I am the Director of Curriculum, Mentoring, and Assessment at the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. And so, uh, like my colleague, um, we also offer fellowships to STEM professionals or individuals who are graduating with backgrounds in STEM that are deeply um, steeped in st with STEM backgrounds. They get a $30,000 fellowship and we, the expectation is, is that they will teach in a high-need urban or rural school for three years at, after receiving their, after getting their master's, their teaching certification, and then teaching for at least three years. So part of, um, so I want to just rewind. I've been at the foundation now for seven years, and before that was at the New York City Department of Education for 19 years. And in my final role at the department, I was the executive director of teacher development and so spent a lot of time focused around the area of induction and pre-service education. So was doing a program that was similar in nature to the work that we're doing now, but very much interested in ensuring that STEM teachers continued in the profession for longer periods of time than we currently have teachers um, persisting in the profession. So I think part of where I come from this work of induction is both on the front end from teacher preparation, but also understanding large school districts and the needs of teachers, particularly in urban school districts. So part of um, what I wanted to talk about today is what I have found increasingly important. So what are the lessons that we've learned in the seven years that I've been at the foundation? We also are in five different states. We are in, we started in Indiana, we're in New Jersey, 
Ohio, Michigan, and currently in Georgia, and looking to expand to other states. And, and I mean, I think it's no surprise to anybody in this room, but the divide between the teacher preparation and what happens to teachers after they go into schools is a pretty stark divide that we need to, um, we need to think about on both ends of the spectrum. I've been thinking a lot because of the nature of our foundation. We have no endowment. <laughs> um, we are an operational foundation, and so all of our money comes from funders within the various states that we are in. We do believe strongly in mentoring, and so part of that funding is $6,000 for each fellow for the three years of induction. That's not enough money, as you can imagine. I was very excited when I came to the foundation because I was going to be able to follow my passion focus on induction and quickly learned that, well, so knew in advance that it's expensive work, but quickly also came up against the challenge of helping both universities and the school districts into which fellows um, became, became, um, became teachers of record that it was going to be difficult to do that work with just $2,000 each year. So we've been thinking a lot about how do you have a shared and formalized space to provide a system of induction support for both our universities and for the school districts that we work with. Meaning, or and in thinking about that, how do we help our teachers to land in places that are going to um, support them as they move forward in their, in their um, in their journeys as teachers, helping fellows to understand that they are not done after their clinical year, and we do do a clinical year in which the fellows begin the day the teachers arrive in the summer, and then when then leave when um, when kids end. So we try to leave them with the impression that. And, and, and I think we all believe this, that teaching is a marathon, it's not a sprint, and that you should be better in your 30th year than you were in your 29th year. And so what we've been trying to do is develop a system of support that resides in New Jersey, um, but helps both universities and school districts think about what are the pieces that they need to have in place in order to support people. A difficult challenge. Um, so I think what I'd like to talk about today is something that we don't frequently talk about, and that's who are the people that do the work of induction. So frequently what happens is people go into schools and they land with a mentor that has been chosen at the school district level, and that could be a person who's steeped in a background of induction, or it could be somebody who has no background. So we've been thinking a lot with our universities around how do you begin to both recruit, but also prepare individuals who can take on the role of a mentor. So what does that mean in terms of, I know when I first got to the, um, Foundation, in many instances, our university partners weren't even going out into classrooms to observe the mentor teachers um, that they were going to, that fellows were going to have. So, how do you stop, take stock, think about what are the core competencies these individuals need to have, and then ensure that you are developing and growing those competencies across time? Right? We all, I think we would all agree in, in this room that 
a good teacher does not necessarily a good mentor make. You can be very good at one and not particularly good at the other. And so what does that mean in terms of the commitment to ongoing development? What does it mean in terms of the selection process? And how do you ensure that there's clarity around the roles and the responsibilities? So frequently what, what we see is individuals that continue the induction process as though it's a supervision process as opposed to taking on the role of a mentor who one advocates on behalf of a new teacher in terms of classroom placement, um, issues around IEPs, et cetera, modeling, co-teaching with fellows, et cetera. So those sort of roles and responsibilities as opposed to supervisory roles and responsibilities. We also have um, been thinking a lot about how do our principals and assistant principals complement the mentoring process with an entire induction experience. So what we try to help principals to understand is you can have a phenomenal mentor that's a one-on-one -on -one relationship, but if that is not, um, if that mentoring relationship is not grounded in a, an entire induction experience that oftentimes you will have people that leave the profession. We also have been thinking a lot and having more conversations about how do clinical faculty assist in placements where possible. And we do have university partners that have done this work for quite some time. Um, I know you're smiling because you all know this. Um, but they think on the front end about where the teachers will land and what is the articulation between what kind of work and who they were as learners in the pre-service phase versus what is the context into which they are going to be um, into teaching. So for example, I think about, um, so for many of our um, fellows, and, and this, is an, this is not an uncommon experience, many of our fellows are in classrooms that um, have high numbers of special ed students but have not had the background to teach those children. So how do we ensure, how do we use clinical faculty who understand the strengths and the weaknesses of teachers, of, um, of teacher candidates to land in places where they will be most successful. I think also of a place like um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name a particular school district, Bayonne, where um, both the principal and the director of math and science are deeply involved in the placement of new teachers and, and ensuring that they have the supports that they need in order to be successful from determining what the schedule is going to look like so that they have, that, so that they don't have classes that so they don't have multiple multiple preps, but also don't have only classes in which um, they will feel success. They will feel unsuccessful in their first year. The other thing that we've been working a lot on is how do we ensure ongoing, consistent interactions between mentors and fellows, and making sure that those those interactions take place early in the school year and on site, so that. Mentor, so that mentors understand what is the context that a fellow is in. So 
it's one thing to hear from a fellow about the context. It's a completely different thing when a knowledgeable and trained mentor teacher is able to get into that classroom context and have a sense of all the different things that are happening that they can decide what to prioritize for the fellow. I think there are two other things. I'm going to skip some things, but there are two other very important compo components of a, a good induction model. Um, that I think bear noting, and one, it's the, the monitoring of the development of each individual, of each teacher candidate, now um, teacher of record. So how is that person doing? So that you're capturing evidence of their practice in a non-evaluative way, but giving them very specific objective data about what you see that they're doing in a classroom so that you can prioritize and develop a plan of action for that particular person. And then the ongoing mentor training and development. And I sort of said those out of order, but those are two key components that we have found are critical to the success, uh, the success and persistence of our fellows. So I'm going to stop there um, and All right. it over to you. Thank you. So my name is Joe Euler. I'm the induction coordinator here at the Center of Pedagogy at Montclair State. Um, my responsibility is to coordinate induction for residents, largely resident graduates of three different programs, uh, as well as undergraduate students coming out of a scholarship program. So, um, you know, the mandate given to me at the beginning of the year when I took on this position was to find something that could scale and sustain. Uh, and so I think what we're trying to do is leverage many of the insights that the panelists here uh, have brought to the field of induction, but really trying to look at how we can expand it. Um, there are challenges with, with providing induction from the university rather than from the school itself. Um, it's something that continues to be a challenge for us, but uh, I'd like to kind of just give an overview of how we try and accomplish it, and then really focus on, I think, two things um, that I can speak to that have come up in the discussion so far today. So. Uh, we provide induction as a three-year program. The core piece of our first year are induction coaches. We have 10 induction coaches that work for the university, but provide coaching on a weekly basis to our grads, to the teachers of record, um, across nine different school districts. So that's site-based support, and we really use our induction coaches as the ones who are kind of on the ground, both helping us understand where, where the new teacher needs, needs some development, where she's struggling, but we also use the coaches to leverage mentor development and school-based induction development. So, you know, for us, we provide induction for an early childhood program as well as a secondary program that does math and science. So our induction coaches really serve to help our, our teachers, our new teachers, to deal with the scary, chaotic survival needs of the first year and then leverage the school-based supports to get the content area support which is available. We are looking to wait for ways to more systematically do that, and I'm, and I'm looking to talk a little bit more about that at the end of the discussion, but let me just give an overview of what our grads go through in terms of the three-year process. So the first year of their support is induction coaching on a weekly basis. We also bring the coaches, uh, the coaches and the grads from all of our cohorts together for a full day of PD, usually here at the university or at a space in one of the bigger districts that we service, to create the kind of co the collegial cohort environment I think that we've talked about. 
Um, this is something we tried to do after school where we learned this year that the teachers preferred a full day engagement rather than spending half day at school, getting involved in whatever, and then having to walk away from it. And so it's something that we're going to offer next year on five different occasions where we bring all the cohorts together. One of the reasons to do that is because we know we can't find enough induction coaches to scale as we continue to grow. And so the idea is that if we continue to have these cohort engagements, even across districts, that the grads will be creating new connections with people that they find affiliation with, who are teaching in ways that they want to, and then just creating a space for them to engage together. The second year of our induction program is really meant to instill in the grads uh, the, the tools necessary for self-study. So we use a quality problems practice framework. Uh, each of our second year teachers identifies a challenge at the beginning of the year. Hopefully it's something that's come from her own, her, from her first year challenges or is a core piece of her personal professional development plan for the year. And we talk about gathering data, informing her ch the changes in practice through that process. Those grads then also present the results of their, of their quality problems of practice at the end of the year for the other graduates, uh, and especially those coming into teaching. The third year, and so we, we go from kind of building foundations in year one to refining foundations in year two, and then in year three, what we're looking to do, and this is a new approach this year, is to really begin to help the individual teachers begin to identify their own teacher identity. And so the model in year three is to provide a menu of PD experiences, professional learning experiences that we think of, that have proven beneficial in, in previous years. Uh, so that might be content area um, based instruction, it might be social justice pedagogy, uh, or it could be teacher leadership. And the idea is that the, the third year graduates then will be able to begin to kind of go off in the direction that they think is meaningful and still come back and present back to the, to the larger cohort in these full days of engagements. So the first year, second year, and third year grads all come together in those full year engagements. Then what we're also doing in terms of sustainability is seeking out the kind of superstar grads in their fourth and fifth year to begin to facilitate the, the professional learning activities that we engage in during the first, or during those full day engagements. So, Liz, who's sitting down here, is a, is a former graduate of the Newark Montclair Urban Teacher Residency Program. This year she was providing and facilitating professional learning experiences during our full day sessions. So a district-based colleague who we've identified as an expert and a point of contact for further support. A couple of new things that we've done this year that, that I do want to focus on and, and, and I think because I'd like to have a bit of a discussion about it, we have a couple of successes. One is in trying to respond to the transition from residency to the teacher of record. And uh, what we were able to do this year was to bring all of the resident mentors together with clinical faculty to create a profile, a learning strengths, challenges profile for each one of the residents. The clinical faculty and the resident mentors then presented to the induction coaches. This happened in May. So each of the induction coaches, in a sense, got a, a bit of a, a sense of what they're, they're going to be doing with, their, with, their, with the grad they'll be working with. It also allowed the coaches to be involved in the pairing decisions about who, who they should be coaching. And now our, our induction coaches are out in the field 
going into the classrooms of our residents before, instead of waiting until next September, they're starting to watch them teach now and engaging with the mentor that's been working with them all year to really get a sense of what's going to be most helpful, what the, what the growth trajectory of that resident looks like. Um, I think the other pieces that we're looking to put in place, so I came on, again, I came into the program about a year ago. One of the things that's missing for us or that is less solid is the development of mentors mm -hmm. and the work with principals. Um, what we're looking to do is to create a, 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 co a, a cohort engagement around principals that are, that are they currently have our residents teaching in their schools. And within two of the programs, we have multiple graduates in, in each of the schools. But the idea there is to really bring them together. And the way that we're trying to bring them together is, is in a focus around developing school-based induction plans. It's something that's proven successful in a teacher leadership program that we have here at Montclair State. And so we're looking to capitalize on that. Because as we engage with the principals, you know, what we're finding is in their day to day, uh, induction is not something they think about. It's not something that they, um, they've spent much time, that they haven't been developed along those lines. It's not part of their planning for the day. They're usually putting out fires or they're trusting their school-based mentor to handle the induction services. So getting those teams together, the principal teams and the mentor teams together, around planning for designing school-based plans is our next step. And I think one of the, the the places I'm looking to learn more, but we're also learning a lot. And I'm, actually, I got the two-minute warning, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up right there. So what I'd like to do then is to just, if uh, again, maybe we can do one round. If anybody on the panel has any questions for anyone else, we can go there, and then we'll turn everything over to a discussion with the group. I have a question. <clears throat> so with organizations like yours, how do you actually organize getting new teachers paired up with, you know, some kind of mentor teacher or that kind of, and then sustain that? Because I know it's like, it's your all across the, yeah. the U.S. So I can answer first. I think the way we do it is, um, may or may not be useful to you, but I'll answer anyway. Um, so we do a thing where our, when we bring in a new cohort, we pair them with a buddy in the cohort ahead of them. Um, so that gives them sort of one, one person who's just a little bit ahead who helps them learn the ropes. Um, but we also have a more formal coaching institute. So what I didn't mention was once our fellows get through all five years, um, they become senior fellows and there's different opportunities that they can engage in. One of which is they go through an, a coaching institute where they learn principles of cognitive coaching they practiced it within a setting within our, our program. And then um, we, we have what we call a coaching partners program. So if somebody says, I really want to work with a coach to help me work on, um, I don't know, class opening routines or something like that, we pair them up with somebody who says, feels like they have some expertise who's been through that coaching program. So that's, a, I think, a little bit idiosyncratic to our program. but. And I would say, so because we're a flow through, the money goes directly to the university. And so what we work with the universities on are how do you, what are the principles by which you're going to select these people? So we don't have an active role in choosing them, but we do, um, we're trying to, to serve as um, sort of a learning partner or a partner with them in their thinking about how do they make decisions about pairing. 
So I have one question for the panel, and it's um, in each of the models, it sounds like there's a lot of what we call cohort engagement. Um, and I, and um, sorry, Toby, you mentioned that sometimes group engagements can devolve into a BS session, something not very productive. And so I'm wondering if there are models of cohort engagement um, that the programs are adopting to help things be successful. You know, for example, we lean on a lot of protocol-based engagement mm -hmm. and have committed to a kind of handful of protocols that we find effective. Um, but I'm wondering if, if there are other insights around that. Um, we, use, we use protocols quite a bit as well. Um, the other thing we do right from the very beginning is start um, supporting fellows to develop cohort norms. So we start them off in an orientation, um, it's a two-day meeting, and we propose some ground rules, which are pretty simple, um, you know, assume positive attention, intentions. Um, there's others, like don't, don't let people off with the easy answers. I forget, there's three. And we put them out there as working ones and encourage them to adapt them as they see fit. And we intentionally build in time um, once a year for them to stop and revisit and reflect on how those norms are working for the cohort. Um, and that seems to be, I think just the attention that we put on it and say we're carving out two hours of this meeting to revisit these and reflect and refine them. Um, and they, they own them. They wind up being pretty similar. Like each cohort comes up with pretty similar norms, so which works out well because in the community, the whole 300 net person network has similar norms. Um, that's worked for us. I, I don't think we don't do anything any differently than that. Um, <clears throat> I was going to say for ours, since we all went through the same process but at different times, what ends up happening is, you know, so I graduated from the program five, six years ago, <clears throat> and since then it's kept changing, and I know that, you know, teaching physics and best practices don't change maybe that quickly, um, but I know that what the newer people go through is definitely different in some ways than what I did. So it's not like there's a specific structured time in these meetings where it's just for best practices or we're gonna talk about exit tickets or you know something like that. Um, we try to keep it a lot more flexible. So like for instance, NGSS just came out and a lot of us had to start teaching waves for the first time because that's one of the big new pushes for physics. And so we've done a lot of PD ourselves with just experiments, to help us learn more in depth about waves, you know, people that haven't taught it, I hadn't taught it before, um, and also the pedagogy of how to teach waves, and then trying to incorporate some of the kind of classic teaching tools that we're used to. So something like, I mean, yeah, like think pair share, but you know, um, like the need to know where's the phenomenon, what's the hook for the kids. Um, peer evaluation. I mean, we'll kind of run the gamut of everything we can think of, but it's very much um, egalitarian. It's just kind of, you know, we'll, we'll organize certain days around certain things depending on what we feel is important. So, <clears throat> for instance, this year we had one whole meeting that was devoted to AP level physics classes with or without calculus. And it's something that we normally don't focus too much on because most people in our group across you know, New Jersey don't necessarily teach AP. And it was an opportunity to kind of talk about how do you self-study some of the more advanced physics topics. 
So I, I'm fortunate that I've gotten to teach some high-level classes, and so I did my spiel on relativity, um, which I love to teach. I actually have a relativity tattoo. Um, I can show you later. Um, and it was it was fun for me because I got to you know help my colleagues, my friends, you know, in some cases my coworkers, understand physics that maybe they had learned a long time ago and had never taught and they were very rusty or learn it in a new way, like learning it through representations rather than just doing it with straight math. So we did like a lot of diagramming, a lot of modeling on paper kind of a thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely not quite as structured, it sounds like, as some of the other things are, but I, I mean, I know that it works. Um, I was actually just checking in this morning with Eugenia just to make sure I got my numbers right. Um, and she was telling, we were talking about the attrition rates earlier, right? Like less than 50% of, of teachers stay in five, six years. Um, and she told me that, you know, of the physics teachers and physical science and chemistry that go through our program, after five, six years, we get between 75 and 90% people stay in teaching, maybe move to another school, but stay in teaching. And she said the people that are 10 years out are 100%. Couple, couple of those cohorts. So, um, you know, I know that, that what we do is, is good. So thanks, uh, um, now we're inviting anyone else to ask, ask questions, if you can come to the mic. Yeah, thank you, I see somebody's already, we've got the norm of the come <laughs> to the mic already established for the. So Maria Rivera from Barnard College in New York. So my question is, um, we are a very small, you know, liberal arts college, and like our education program has three faculty. So, um, you know, we've tried various iterations of trying to do reduction, but we just don't have the capacity to really work with graduates unless they're sort of in the in the local area. Um, and I guess what I wanted to know from from Toby is. What kind of faculty engagement was necessary to kind of get the thing started and, and to keep it going? Did it require, does it still require faculty or is it all just graduates at this point? Um, because like I said, you know, like there's not one of us that feels like this is something I could do like on a monthly basis, for example. So, I mean, in our case, definitely Eugenia, she's the head of the, the program. I mean, she is the, the unifying factor, um, but I really felt that it got beyond her. There was a year where she went away on sabbatical, um, and myself and this other teacher, Matt, um, we kind of took up the reins a little bit. Um, I mean, we're part of the program now. I guess I mean, we are faculty. I teach a summer class um, for this program that I actually took <laughs> on engineering and education. And I guess that's the key is, you just make the graduates become the faculty, I guess, no. But, um, about how long did it take? For me to become faculty? No, yeah, for that, <laughs> for that yeah, for that process. Well, I mean, this, I mean, this whole thing has been 15 years. I mean, since okay. 2002, it started out initiated by her, you know, who's the head of the program, and it was her initiative. Um, and it was, a, you know, like a once a month kind of thing, and she was willing to devote her time, and there was no money involved or anything to do that. Um, and I think you don't, you don't need more than that, really. Um, it just requires an open environment where people are willing to come together and willing to be wrong and willing to, to get mentored by people that came before. So we've had various sessions where different people were running it, even though she was there. You know what I mean? She's really the person that just gets us the room in Rutgers. You know what I mean? We just have to have someone that says, you know, unlock the doors for us. Um, 
but now a lot of us have the keys. I have key, you know. So I would say, even if you only have three faculty, you don't need more than three faculty. You know, the base is going to come from your years of cohorts, one after the other. Not that everyone shows up. I mean, I know. Okay, I'm going to boast a little bit, like on the paper where they said how many graduates per year, whatever. Rutgers obviously is humongous because it's it's a big school, and we graduate um, the most number of physics teachers in the United States for a physics specific program. Um, but you know, not everybody is showing up every Friday, you know, to this thing. I mean, that would be, you know, a couple hundred people or something, you know, over these last many years. Um, but we probably get about 10 or 15 people in person each meeting, and then we do go-to meeting, um, and we'll get another five or six people, you know, depending on, you know, how, at the same meeting but digitally, you know, because people are now have families, have kids. I'm not there yet, um, you know, and so they can't make it. You know, or they live in South Jersey, they live far in North Jersey, and they can't make it on time to the meeting. And we, we do have someone, that former graduate, that lives in Hong Kong with her family. And so she'll Skype in very early in the morning when we're at night and have our evening meetings. So I know the distance can be an issue, but um, we work around it with go-to meetings. Well, you know, anyone that wants to do something specific will have a handout ready and email it to everyone ahead of time. or. In our case, we have a Facebook group, and so we'll just share out stuff. And as we do things during the meeting, you know, you find an interesting video and you analyze the video, or we are um, practicing new styles of problems from a new textbook that's aligned with NGSS. I mean, we'll just share those things out so they can still collaborate as a group, and it'll kind of be like, you know, we'll pair off in person in our small groups to do whatever the activity, as, you know, as students would. Um, and then the online people will have their own group, and they will have the same experience that we do in person, for the most part. Anybody else have any insights about the role of faculty? You're looking at me. <laughs> I mean, we're not associated with the university, so. So what we've, so of course we do have money connected to this, but there are faculty members who have taken it upon themselves to continue this work over the course of years. So for example, in Indiana, we now have our, our first group of fellows will start their seventh year of teaching. And so clearly the funds are done. Um, but we do have one or two faculty members who have taken it upon themselves to continue the work of bringing the groups together. And, you know, I'm, I was thinking about what uh, Toby said, and it's, it's a matter of thinking about what is it about these particular faculty members that have been able to do this over the course of time. And it really is their sheer commitment to following up with these fellows, despite the fact that the funding is gone. But they've also developed a community of practice that they feel that every time they go to a session or they meet up, they feel that there's value in it. Um, I also just wanted to say we, you know, besides doing these Friday meetings, we also do more traditional workshops sometimes if like there's a need for it. So we'll do, you know, like we did NGSS specific stuff of really diagramming out the science and engineering practices, DCIs, cross-cutting concepts. We've done both. We've done both. So we've done sessions on the Friday nights where it's just about NGSS. You know, because some people went through the program way before anybody had ever coined it. Mm -hmm. I went through the program when it was being developed. The terminology wasn't there, but I was in it. You know what I mean? So I, I feel a level of comfort. And now the people that are coming out now, 
are, you know what I mean, like they're fully in it. I mean, this is part of the program now. Um, I personally did a workshop outside of this Friday night thing, a separate thing, um, it was on like a Saturday night, um, that was on standards-based grading um, because enough people were interested and Eugenia was also at that point where she thought it was something valuable to start incorporating into the traditional program. And also since now I'm one of the teachers of the program, I just do that when I have my class. But for the people that are not in it anymore, it's a way of bringing in whatever is new into the community. So I was just going to mention STEM teachers, NYC, if you know them. So the other question that I had is about sort of the university-based um, model. And my question is, how much does it cost to hire the, the science coaches? A lot. Um, and how, like, how many, like, what's, how, how do they, like, what, how many hours do they do, like, like all that kind of, how many Sorry. Yeah. Um, so, how much does it cost, and where do we find them? Um, the weekly coaching that we provide right now costs about five to six thousand uh, dollars per grad for the full year. Um, I think that's part of why we're trying to explore ways to scale the cohort engagements is to offset that cost, um, to get away from that cost. Um, we do find that the coaches are, are, are an integral piece of that first year. Largely, I mean, you know, part of our challenge is, um, in many cases, the coach is taking over for the school-based mentor, and the school-based mentor is, is dropping out of the engagement. And so, so not only do we need good content area coaches, but we need coaches that can go into a school and leverage partnership within that school and see that school's commitment back up. Um, I don't know where to find coaches. I think I was going to ask the, <laughs> the audience that. Uh, we find our coaches, they're largely retired teachers from the Newark Public School District. Uh, our major grant-funded program is a partnership with Newark Public Schools. Um, because it's a 66 school district, you can find some retirees. Um, but you know there are challenges with with Folks who are retired, they haven't been in the classroom for a while, you know, their practice might be uh, a little more traditional in some cases. Uh, so we're looking at models of, you know, ideally for us, because we have a nine-year program now, we have people like Liz, graduates of the program, who have stepped up, taken a leadership role, and are really beginning to take on components of coaching. Uh, and we're trying to just find how can we build coaching into those full days engagements as much as possible to reduce the amount of school visits that need to happen. I think we're also lucky that we have multiple graduates in, in schools, in a given school, and so a coach visit, she can, she can touch base with three to four teachers at a time uh, without driving to Bayonne. But uh, it remains our challenge, and it's certainly my challenge, because you know, uh, faculty here are looking to do more and more small-based residency programs, but have one induction coordination of that. So, um, so if you know coaches, um, send them my way. of 
as traditional or routed through early days of the alternate certification process. That was just a thought. But one of the things that I'm grappling with is the, for me, invisibility of the discourse around um, equity and intellectual engagement, specifically uh, as it relates to STEM preparation uh, for informal education, especially in a state like New Jersey, where we have programs uh, for teachers that work with students in Newark and Camden and Jersey City and Patterson outside of the school day. And um, why that's a missing part of the conversation. And especially if we're talking about teacher leadership and capacity for leadership, perhaps that's the prime space to do a lot of this work because then you can engage um, in, a, in a very meaningful way the multilingual, bicultural, multicultural context on top of the content. Because I think we have to do school differently. And the 10 month model where you go from 7.45 to 3 is part of the challenge as well. And so I'm particularly interested in the capacity building um, as it relates to uh, foundations, but also this notion of embedded um, support for teachers. Joy from our Princeton. Joy from Princeton High School. Hi, Joy. So I guess um, we're lucky enough in the, in the Montclair program to have, uh, as part of our residency, uh, a community-based engagement. So the summers for the residents are spent with with members with community um, programs that work with children. Um, so I think we start that in the residency. Have we done a good enough job of sustaining that in the induction sequence? Probably not. Um, some of our lead faculty are taking that on as part of their research agenda. So we have uh, Professor Bree Pickauer here is very interested in social justice pedagogy and is working, is providing ongoing social justice lesson planning and, and a professional learning community really with our grads around those issues. So we've been lucky that some of that's addressed by the faculty, um, but it's just luck. And of course, that's not what you're, what you're concerned about, right? How do we systematically do that? Yeah, I think, you know, particularly for me, um, my challenge is I don't know how to do that at scale. I don't know how to support that across nine school districts now. And so I, I envision as, as the university induction program grows, um, that ideally what we would have is probably this district liaisons who would also then liaise with community programs as well to kind of sustain that engagement. Our coaches do do a, an extensive amount of support in helping early, early profession, early years teachers and working with parents, staying connected to the community. And the residency, again, I think itself really builds a relationship with the community and that's what it's designed to do. And so our, but we, I guess we kind of just keep our fingers crossed about it, right? Which is not enough. I would say that we're, um, you know, because our program is a national program and we draw on teachers from all these different contexts, we don't, um, it's a challenge for us to sort of build it in when everybody's, there is no one particular community we're trying to help teachers 
or even several, it's the whole nation. Um, but I will say that the, what we found to be the most effective is this focus on practitioner inquiry and building, helping teachers build this capacity to look very deeply at what's going on in their own context. Um, combined with this structure that I sort of briefly described where we, we think of it as they're looking, we're helping them look in ever-widening circles. So they start looking deeply at their own content knowledge, who they are, how they came to learn science or math, and then start expanding that to their own students in their classroom, their schools, and understand that their students are part of the community. So that, um, I think practitioner inquiry is a really powerful tool to help teachers become the ones who can think about how do I engage this particular community with these particular students around these particular issues, um, rather than us trying to own it and, and map it out for them. So it's a little bit of, a, it takes some faith. It's, you know, we sort of have to let go of control and trust, trust our teachers to be the ones to um, wade through this stuff and we're there for them and supporting them. But practitioner inquiry is almost, um, it's a lot like inquiry pedagogy and teaching science, right? Like magic happens if you, if you trust it. So I was going to say that your question was fascinating, and I actually initially thought, was thinking about the later years of their teaching, right? But, and I think that that's a way to get people um, out of their classroom thinking about wider impact, et cetera. But I do think that there's something about the way we've been talking about this in just the past few minutes that um, speaks to actually the need to sort of revisit that experience that the, that the fellows get early on in terms of thinking about. So in our fellowship programs, most of our university partners do a summer experience where they're working with, that, with, um, with students in different contexts so that they understand kids in general. But I think that there's something to be said about cycling back to that earlier rather than later, um, just because of the things that I see in classrooms um, you know, as I go out to visit where fellows, even after having had these wonderful experiences where people have modeled for them how to engage with kids that may be different from them, et cetera, that, that their initial experience in classrooms still results in a little bit of culture shock for some of them. And so I think this notion of revisiting it earlier than what I was initially thinking you were talking about might be a really good idea.
the uh, larger goal of education for all and education for understanding and education for lifelong learning because you kind of just education for the next level. How am I going to get to my golden university or whatever um, or get kids to that level? And it's, it's a challenge that I think if we think about early in the process, um, we will, I, I don't know, um, I just wanted to say, I mean, we don't have something structured for that after you get out of um, the teacher preparation program. I know that the Rutgers Graduate School of Education, the general, not like the physics one, does a good job. Okay, I'm not going to say that. They do something <clears throat> for social justice, and that's part of the general coursework. Um, but when I say that, I'm fully aware that most of the people I graduated with are like me. And when we did our cultural experiences, a lot of them just decided to go to Baptist churches. Um, I chose Scientology Church. That was interesting. Um, but there's not a whole lot built in, you know, to get you out of the comfort zone. Um, the places where, personally, I experienced that, Rutgers is in New Brunswick. New Brunswick is a very urban area. Not a lot of white kids in the area. So when I went to the elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, it was not like my experience. Again, that's not as good as it should be, you know, and we don't have that after we graduate, but it was something. Um, the best that we do now is just whatever teachers that graduated happen to work in urban areas come and share their experiences. And that's happened several times. People that work in New Brunswick, <clears throat> a couple teachers that work in New York in one of the boroughs or something like that. Um, you know, the most that we do now when I think about it is when it's, um, you know, like International Women's Day, we'll do a whole thing about, you know, famous female physicists. Or like when I took this class that I teach now, which was about engineering, there was a big, big push, which I try to do still, but I don't have the same connections as the previous teacher, of how do you involve girls in engineering, and we tried to pair up with the Target program, do you know the Target program, um, to uh, encourage middle school girls um, to go into engineering, um, but that's something that I don't think anybody really does well. So. Are there any other questions? Yeah. I have, like, uh, sorry, Katie, Penn State. Um, <clears throat> I just have a couple questions about the Montclair program. So you're saying that for the three years following graduation, you provide an induction service for those pre-service teachers. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? So how do you manage to make that work? Or is it that you mostly have in-state students who stay in, this, in the area? Our situation, I mean, I'm sure all of our graduates would love to stay in Happy Valley for the rest of their lives, but that's just not, that's just not happening. Um, and so kids get sent, or the, the graduates get sent, not just to, you know, Philadelphia and Harrisburg and Erie, but I mean, we send them all the way down to Virginia, and you know, they're, they're all over the place. So how do you, um, how do you support that? As because I think it's an, it's, it's an amazing program to do, but how do you support that? Not just financially, but with that geospatial issue. Um. It's a great question. It's something that we haven't had to face quite yet. I mean, I think what we find is the students that commit to a residency program here 
our goal is to keep them here. And so, right, especially in Newark, Elizabeth, public districts, Orange. Um, but we have, through our partnership with Woodrow, begun, been faced with this immediately. You know, in the, in the next year, we have somebody who wants to be teaching down in Philadelphia. And so I think that's pushing us to think about different ways of engaging with your cohort through digital media. Um, we're also having to look to get back into leveraging our connections that exist in the university. You know, so one of the places we look for coaches is in doc students. So maybe you know, one way to do it is to start looking at grad students who we have here for a certain amount of time that we can develop all that while we're here to create a pocket community wherever, wherever the grads can land. Um, I think there's real, the technology can be a real tool um, for induction, I think a lot, because we, because so much of what we do is protocol based and because protocols can be, in a sense, communicated or engaged in digitally in a, in a, in a pretty effective way, that that's the platform that we would want to work from, some form of shared protocol driven engagement. Um, but in terms of that induction coach piece, uh, it's about tapping into the relationships we have to see if we can build more partnership. Uh, I was just going to say, you may want to also look into something like My Teaching Partner, which, um, have you heard of My Teaching Partner? So My Teaching Partner is a web-based induction program, but very grounded in ensuring that the coaches are deeply trained. Um, and I'm trying to remember the price point at this point, but it was... In the scheme of things, it's not particularly expensive, um, but something like that might really work. And I, I do agree that when it's protocol-based, it makes a big difference, but I, I think in addition to having those coaching skills, you also need to have the technological skills to make sure that, and I don't mean the basic technological skills, but you know, to make that work. Just to clarify, just so Pennsylvania have to do a year of induction that's required by the state and there's regulations. Does New Jersey require a year or three years or like is there a state mandated program? Question. When you say it's required, it's required for the new teacher? So the new teacher has to get it? I had to go through it three times because I went to three different schools as a teacher and every time you went they didn't care, they just made you redo it over again. So it was a certain building a portfolio and doing all it was ridiculous, but doing it three times. So, we, so if I can answer. Um, there is a mentoring requirement. You have to have a mentor through whatever school you're working at, and they get part of your salary, which is just so nice with our salaries, what they are. Yeah, they, they just take money out of your paycheck. Not a lot, but like, you know. Um, so that happened to me my first year. My mentor did nothing really with me. He didn't want to collaborate. Um, <clears throat> and then after that, my school district had a three-year whatever to ten-year kind of portfolio-ish, action plan-ish, do something um, thing. And then when I switched schools to a new school and I was starting over from scratch, at least on the ten-year track, um, I had to start over again. Not with a mentor. Um, because then they didn't have to worry about doing the pay, whatever thing. But I still had to go to PD workshops with all the other new people, even though I wasn't really new. And yeah, but that's not a state thing. I think that's a school district to school district thing. The state, it's just the, the one year mentoring until you have your, your standard license. And I'll 
ERs, right, the urbanization residencies that have the, induction, the long induction. I mean, you guys, we graduate a ton of teachers that don't get this long induction. Yeah, right. Cur currently, I coordinate induction for the Woodrow Wilson Teaching Fellows yeah. Program, the Newark Monka Urban Teacher Residency, the and the Noise Teaching Scholars okay. Program. Yeah. But the and university's not, goal, not all. right? Penn State graduates so many, right? Yeah. So yeah. So but the idea is to scale. I mean, scale. the the task of it. Of, the only reason I have a job is because we're looking to scale <laughs> induction at some level to, to all. Also do it after if you wanted to, if there are openings, yeah. Okay, we're doing the program. You would assign the class for yourself because normally in places like Queens College uh, where we work, you have to be already a graduated student to be able to teach in a, even a lab. So um, how I, do you... Yeah, I don't know what Rutgers' policy is on that. I don't know, Ravi. I don't know. You might be able to answer better than me. I don't know. Um, do you know? What Rutgers policy? I'm not entirely sure whether when you say TA, it's the same meaning. Right. We weren't paid, really. Yes, no, we were paid. We were paid? All yes. The were paid at full As part time lecturers, that's a certain designation that the okay. university has. Not very much money. So that's a slightly different kind of category, right? It does not involve tuition. Yes, no, we did not get any break on tuition. So, and I'm not exactly sure. So I, I think that these. Um, Sessions, uh, these sections have to be manned, um, and they're manned by folks in the physics teacher education program, um, which is, is not, it's, it's a, it's not a huge number, so this, it's not like you're looking for 60, no. 60 people, okay? um, so I think it's sort of manageable uh, and highly effective in a small yeah, so this is not all physics classes. There's like, I don't know, five different levels of introductory physics at Rutgers, you know, for all the different majors and stuff. So this is just physics for science majors, but not engineers or physics majors or, you know, nothing with calculus. It's called physics for the sciences. A lot of um, exercise science majors, bio, you know, that kind of thing. Is it lab or? There's both. So there's a lecture, there's a lab, there's a recitation. It's a class like you know any other physics class you would take. Um, when I went through it, it was during the teacher preparation program, and <clears throat> depending on the number of sections, um, we each got a lab and a recitation for two semesters in a row. So basically, it you know the purpose was, was several purposes. One is it was when we were in the first year of the program. It's helping us with our physics to make sure that we're on task. And I can tell you from firsthand, my physics was not that great, even though I was a physics major. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the force concept inventory. It's a multiple choice conceptual test on introductory physics knowledge um, in mechanics. And I probably scored like a 30% when I entered the graduate program. And I was a senior at the time, physics major, you know. 
very, very fancy professional. Um, so, you know, a lot of us still needed a lot of work because, like was said earlier, I mean, pretty much everybody that becomes a teacher has gone through a lecture-based education, as did I. Um, so, yeah, we did a lab where you're learning how to not come up with the labs yourself, but you're learning how to get students to come up with the experiment and how to run their own labs and how do you manage that and guide them as the teacher. And then the recitations are more content-based and less skill-based. Um, but that was, that was a very, very big thing. So, you know, maybe there were 10 of us and each of us got two sections, so maybe it was like around 20 sections total. Some people that go through the program are already teachers and they don't do it and, you know. But it's definitely something that I think was extremely helpful just to get our feet wet, you know, especially before we got into formal observations in high schools and student teaching. It was good for content. It was good for us, you know, kind of to learn how to teach, even though the, the level of content was a little different. And this, when we were applying it for the first time in this year in my class, and I had to make myself as a teacher, even though I'm going to put the student in the, in the classroom. And also we are thinking about using the students as a stockroom assistant. So this way they learn how to even prep for those basic yeah. classes, you know, like in one of the two ways, whether it be, uh, you know, paid to some grant or something, but, you know, we could not do that directly. Right, right. So, yeah, we didn't get a tuition break or anything. We got paid, I don't know, it was probably like a few hundred to a thousand dollars per section. Um, and I don't know how the money worked for that, but it was good for rent at the time. I, I have a question for several of you, but you're thinking about, I hear in your conversations that you're thinking about trajectories of practices, of people, and I'm wondering, I have a three-part question. <laughs> I've been stewing in the back, so a couple questions. One. Um, what are the most salient um, trajectories that you focus on? I think I heard those. I'm wondering how you communicate those to the different school actors. How do you communicate those to the participants in your program, um, to outsiders? So what can, can I ask, can you clarify a little bit what you mean by trajectories? Okay, so um, I think this probably applies to the other panelists more than you in particular, because I think your, you have a, I, I understand the board's an informal network um, that supports teachers, absolutely important too. And I'm, I'm asking a little bit more about the formal um, structures that have imagined trajectories about teachers over their first five years, um, or mentors over their first ten years. Um, so what, what is the development of the, the people or the development of the practices for those people, like the mentoring practices induction practice, uh, teaching practices. Um, so I'm wondering how you communicate those. Um, and I'm also wondering um, how do you keep a pulse on them? So how do you evaluate them? And to know if those are the right trajectories, uh, like how are you evaluating yourself on those trajectories? What kind of data do you collect and analyze? Uh, and last part uh, is um, how have you thought about equity in those trajectories and how you conceptualize those. We talked a little bit about it, but I'd just love to hear a little bit more explicitly about your attention to equity in those trajectories. Thank 
So I can start on that. I'm not entirely sure where to start because that was a lot of questions, but I can. Um, the communication question, I think, is pretty easy. We've, you know, we do this iteratively, and it's this is actually tied pretty closely to the evaluation question. So we have um, an embedded evaluation program that hinges on. We have a set of goals for each year. Um, we there's a set of um, I'll call them loosely call them reports that the staff writes each year, where they do an overall vision for the year. Um, then they do planning documents, we divide the year into thirds, and they sketch out, we're going to emphasize these goals for this period, um, here's the strategies we're going to use to try and meet these goals, here's the data, we do a data plan for each trimester, if you will. Um, we have research staff that helps with those data plans and evaluation, um, and then we do meetings, um, this is sort of us trying to take this practitioner inquiry stance on for ourselves, where we meet across the staff and look at the data that came out um, in relation to what we thought we were trying to accomplish. So that is, um, by and large, our, how we communicate that among staff happens through that mechanism. Um, for the fellows themselves, I think we're still struggling with this. Um, we try and give them things that say, here's what the five-year trajectory looks like, and then this year we're doing this. And we think we're communicating that, but often they'll come back and be like, wait, what? Did we do that? I didn't know that. So we have some work to do there, and I think the place where we are have not been successful at all is communicating this externally, and we're working on that, and we, we keep finding that we're so deeply immersed in it when we try and write stuff and give it to people to read. They're like, way too detailed. We don't want to know this. So um, yeah, we're still working on that piece. And then as far as the, the equity piece, um, this has come up over and over again where our fellows have come back to us and said, I mean, early on, I think when you were involved with us, we were doing a dismal job of that. And we kept coming up as like, everybody is, is struggling with this. Um, so we have gotten, I, we're not there yet by any means, um, but we've gotten much better at building it in as this underlying expectation in everything we do is that you're going to be, no matter where you're teaching, you're going to be dealing with students who are not like you. So one of our, our goals is how do we help you, A, understand those differences, um, treat those as assets and resources for learning, um, and we also are very explicit about that that extends not just to your students but to your colleagues as well. So most of our teachers come in with this idea about um, deficit thinking about your students is not productive and you have to get past that. We try and deepen that a little bit, but also help them recognize when they take deficit perspectives of their colleagues, which is like this mind-blowing thing that goes like, wait, what? And it's like, no, this is, this is equally problematic. If you're in your school thinking, I'm special, and whatever. Um, so those things have gotten pretty, pretty tightly bound together. And we do have a partic some particular strategies that we found complex instruction to be really useful as a way of really grounding that into classroom practice helping teachers generate data that they then look at together to think about who's being served and why, and what, what moves are you making that are creating, unintentionally creating, better learning opportunities for some students than others. So I think what I would say is that When I started at the foundation, the big bet wasn't on the issues of equity. The big bet was on, well, so in part, but through value added. 
and that was the big bet that Arthur was taking. Um, I think we are backing into that work now. Um, so we're seven years in, we've got very few data points in terms of how our fellows are doing in terms of value added, but, uh, but much more data in terms of where they're persisting. So there were three things that, um, there were three goals for the foundation. One, that our fellows would do better than other fellows in terms, or not other fellows, than similar teachers um, in terms of their value added score. Second, that they would persist at higher rates. And then third, that we were trying to change what was happening in teacher preparation. So there's very little data in terms of the value added. Um, our persistence data is pretty good across states at about 80% after the third year. So they have to stay beyond three years. Um, and so we'll get more uh, very good data as I mentioned before, that in Indiana, they're going to be seven. They'll be a seventh cohort, or they'll be in their seventh year. So we'll get more information. I don't think equity was um, the front of mind for Arthur as he was doing this work. I think that we're backing into it now, though, um, in terms of the work that we're doing. So we're spending a lot more time because it's so hard to get data about our fellows just because of where they end up teaching and whether or not they're in tested grades, et cetera. We're getting much more from what we call our formative assessment processes where we go out and visit fellows. And that is one of the things that, um, one of the competencies that we are looking for. But it's much more qualitative data and we don't have lots of data to go by. So we recently started, and this may be completely different than what you're looking for, but let me just talk about how I'm trying to help get at it. So we've re more recently said that we can't wait for, you know, three years out, four years out to get this data. So in visiting our fellows that are currently out in classrooms now, we're trying to capture what are the practices they're engaged in. Equity literacy is one of the things that we're looking for, and we're also looking at how they engage in culturally relevant pedagogy, those two things specifically. Um, and I'd say that we have very little information, um, but what information I do have right now there's clearly more work to be done, um, and we will continue to, 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 to focus on it. I don't know if that's helpful. So I guess I can add. Um, so the, the salient points of the trajectory, I, I, you know, the current trajectory grows out of just previous years, and I think, um, and that and the, the research on, on early professional experience of teachers. So, you know, the move from a kind of survival to refinement to leadership is the trajectory that we adopted. Um, we communicate that just through the ongoing engagement. I think one of the things that is beneficial from having a university-based induction coordinator is that one person sends the message and it's a consistent message and it's reiterated throughout the process. So we introduce the calendar at the beginning of the year. We work directly with grads throughout the year to both reflect on it and revise it with our evaluation team, but actually as part of our cohort engagements. Um, and, so, and we keep 
It's also communicated through the induction coaches, and the induction coaches, again, are a crucial piece to keeping a pulse on, um, on how things are going and what we need to address. You know, so what we do is we map out a structure for engagements and let the content of those engagements be driven by the experience of the grads over the year. So our, I meet with the coaches monthly. The coaches may say, you know, the coaches report out about the experience of the grads and it may be, you know what, everybody right now is struggling with small group work. Nobody's doing good group work instruction. Or, you know, they're leaving too many groups off alone. And so that then what, I, what we do is we get together with everyone that's going to be a facilitator in the program, so someone like Liz or colleagues, veteran grads, and we design the next sessions to address that. So um, I'm an old inquiry person. I'm a philosophy for children person, which you may know about from UW over there. So everything for me is pretty student-driven. I think we've designed structures to really keep our fingers on that pulse. Um, to the extent that we're even revising the trajectory, you know, my, when I started, I thought year three was going to be all about leadership. And um, as I could tell that the, that the third year grads were being less and less engaged around that, we just broke off and had some focus group time with them. And I engaged them as an inquiry team about what should a third year of induction look like? Um, you know, and what they told us was, I'm not ready for leadership. I'm just figuring out my content. Can you help me with content? And so that's why next year we're, we're moving to the menu model, where if you're ready for leadership, we want to engage you around that. If you need some more focused content area support, we're going to do that as well. Um, I think our conception of leadership is grounded in our, in our, is grounded in our, um, our core commitments here at Montclair State University. You know, the teacher ed program here really sees the agenda for education in a democracy as its moral kind of foundation. And I know that much of the, the faculty teach in that way. I mean, one of our challenges is we're teaching, you know, I think we do a good job of dealing with equity in our teacher preparation. And then they get into districts where they can't do what they want to do. Uh, and so the school partnership piece is meant to create more opportunities for that. Um, but again, I think we can do a better job of keeping a pulse on that particular piece. Um, although I think we have a good, strong foundation. And that foundation is really, we've seen a culture shift in the places where we have a real kind of mass of graduates being located. And, you know, we have certain schools, Eastside School, where Liz worked, has six to eight graduates from one of the resident programs. And you see a fundamental shift in her, in her school there. Um, but we, yeah, I think I appreciate the question because I think we'd have to do a better job of checking that we're keeping that going as well. Uh, it's been an assumption that we've had um, and not a safe one, probably. So we have time for one more question. Uh, so my question is really um, about induction in general because in some ways, you know, it seems a, a bit like the middle child, right? Uh, in the sense that um, when you look at the panel, we've got, you know, foundations that are trying to do this, you know, one teacher at a time, and then we have, you know, some universities that are trying to do this sort of locally within the span of influence that they can have either informally or formally. Um, and what I don't see, kind of building on your talk, is all the stakeholders who really need to be involved in induction. And, and because I think it's a bigger deal. Mm -hmm. Because we know that that's a crucial period in terms of the success of first year teachers. And yet, we know that schools aren't doing a great job of this, school districts aren't, you know, in general, aren't doing a great job of this, or we wouldn't have 
the teacher movement and the teacher turnover that we're having. So can any of you kind of speak to sort of lessons learned and what you might want to say to you know, either the principals or the district leaders that are not in the room about you know, what they might be doing um, to kind of better this induction period? So the principals and the school leaders, so on the district side, right? So what, when I was doing more district partnership work, one of the things that I always said to principals and to superintendents is consider this program as building your bench, right? So figuring out who are the people who are your top performers in terms of, so we focus on STEM, um, in terms of your STEM teachers, but also who are the people that need that push, right? And those are the people that we want you to sort of help us to work with so that they become leaders in the next iteration of this, right? You can't, we're tapping out the people who are the best people in the school. Those are the people that are asked to do everything, and there are very few of them. So this challenge of, so from pre-service on, right, you've got very few people trying to do a lot of work. We're tapping those people day after day, day after day for many different things. And then on the other end, we're asking them to also now do induction with these people. We've got to build a bench because otherwise our schools aren't going to get better. And so that, and it's been difficult to get principals to do that work and even superintendents to do that work because it means that they have to, de to devote time and resources to it. It's not going to get better without time and resources. Um, <clears throat> personally, as a teacher, the thing I always noticed about um, building level or district level PD is that it was always like a day or a few hours or this is the trendy thing right now and we're going to buy it and it's standardized for, for everybody. Um, and I moved around to two different school districts, and so then whatever one school district likes, the other school district will like something totally different. So, you know, something that I wanted, even in addition to the thing that I do, is I wanted sustained PD from something that was content-specific. Um, I get stuck in these, you know, one-day-a-year conferences with, no offense to elementary people, but, you know, elementary teachers who science is you know, two days a week for half an hour, and it's important that they do that, but most of their job is not my job. Um, and I couldn't really collaborate with those people, and I was always with the incoming cohort of whoever got hired at the same time. So it was like, you know, I had been teaching for a couple of years, but they were all brand new, and they were different content, and they wanted to work on other things, um, and also it was one day. And you don't learn anything in, in one day. So I think the virtue of good PD is not just the quality of it, but the length of time. It has to, you know, something that goes across a year minimum, if not longer, and it can't just be like an hour here, an hour there. So, and, and ideally something outside the school district, because a lot of new teachers move around from place to place, right, so you find the place that you, that you like and that you're comfortable with. I'm still, I'm still in that phase. Um, you know, so I feel lucky that I have this other thing that's a different community that I can rely on, but people can find communities like that. I mean, we have people that come to our meetings that did not go through the program. They just started coming through a coworker, or they heard about it through somebody else. STEM Teachers NYC, I go to their stuff also. Modeling curriculum is like all over the United States. You know, and that's something that you can get consistency um, and flexibility in location depending on where you go. So I think like that's the thing I would 
say to my principal or principals in the past. You know, like give me something that's long term, not just, you know, flavor of the month kind of thing. So can I just add, that's what I meant by time, is that ongoing commitment to preparing people who can function as coaches and mentors. So I see that people are moving to the snack table and I've been given a five minute signal about eight minutes ago. So I wanna um, thank you all for your questions and if we can have a round of applause for the panel, thank you so much.